stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, before you uh, decide that you've had enough of hearing about the Oscars... (laughs) Um, we're going to be talking about them today because I am putting Oscar on the couch. You, I'm sure you've read a lot of things or heard about a lot of things or most likely watched the Oscars yourself, um, but here's your chance to get a psychiatrist's perspective on the movies and the goings-on of the, of the show as well, of the ceremony. So let's start. First of all, um, one good thing <laughs> The uh, there for best picture, there were and in fact for a lot of the um, actually most of the things that were up for awards were not violent movies. That in itself is something to be mentioned, noted, and congratulated, um, because because that hasn't always been that way in the past, and um, and of course um, you know as I, being a a violent, an anti-media violence activist, um, because of the impact of violent media on people. This is something that I find to be extremely important, and especially because um, these movies really were an exceptional group, especially the ones who were nominated for Best Picture. And I mean, it's not just that they didn't have violence in the movies; stunk. <laughs> they were really intelligent, very intelligent movies. And um, and that you know is something that um, that um, made the choice difficult. Although although we'll talk more about that um, as we go along. But I I want to start off by talking about some of the um, oh sort of well of course talking about Billy Crystal and talking about some of the strange happenings that occurred randomly during the show. Um, well, Billy Crystal, I thought was fabulous, and this is the ninth time that he hosted the Academy Awards. Um, that the person who did it the longest actually was Bob Hope, who did it 18 times. But there was something about Billy Crystal. Now, I don't know if you've read or heard um, some of the criticisms of the Oscar telecast, but some of the people said, "Oh, you know, he it was." Like he, he, it was, um, oh, I don't know, too, but the humor wasn't edgy enough. Well, it's funny, it's kind of ironic, because on the one hand, it wasn't edgy enough, it was uh, like old school humor and so on, and on the other hand, he was being criticized for being um, very politically incorrect. 
of course, it's interesting because what's old school, I mean, years and years ago, um, we weren't as conscious about political, being politically correct as we are now. So there's kind of a, an, uh, a hypocrisy and an irony in all of that. Um, I think we are too politically correct, and that is interfering with our enjoying humor and enjoying life in general. Not that we shouldn't be sensitive, but, I mean, things have gone to an incredible extreme. Um, and so there was something sort of warm and comfortable about having Billy Crystal um, host the Oscars. We were able to sit there and relax and laugh, and it was like um, sitting in a comfy armchair. It wasn't sitting on the edge of your seat wondering what gas the presenter, the MC, was going to do next, as we've had in some award shows that have made people incredibly uncomfortable for various reasons. So, um, you know, and the, the other part of it is that with the, the world being the way it is this year, I mean, with things being particularly um, stressful between the economy and Iran's nuclear war and uh, aspirations and just so many other things that are scary enough and, and irritating enough and anxiety-provoking enough in our world. The idea of sitting down and watching the Oscars with Billy Crystal leading us through it was very comforting indeed. Now, I love the way he um, started it. I mean, this, well, he actually, there was, he started it with an, a montage that made fun of the movies that were up for Best Picture, and they were very funny. Um, and the, he then started the show saying, nothing takes the sting out of these tough economic times like watching a bunch of millionaires giving golden statues to each other. So he was an equal opportunity um, making, he made fun of people with equal opportunity. You know, it wasn't really um, people who were so uptight because of being politically incorrect focus on certain groups that they get upset about that people, they think people are taking liberties with making fun of or whatever. But in fact, Billy Crystal didn't really make f more fun out of any one particular group than any other, and certainly... You know, this was of the people in the academy, a bunch of millionaires giving golden statues to each other. So that should have should have taken away any criticism for his um, other jokes that related to groups. Uh, however, <laughs> for some, uh, you know, people have to find fault with everything. I mean, especially on the internet these days, there are so many mean-spirited people writing things. Um, so, for example, um, one of the one of the uh, jokes that Billy Crystal made that got um, criticism, what, which was really funny, if you he you know surely you you should be able to know that he didn't mean it in any mean spirited way, but he said um, after Octavia Spencer won uh, Best Supporting Actress for The Help, he said he loved the film so much that he came out of the theater wanting to hug the first black woman he saw. And then he said, which from Beverly Hills is about a 45-minute drive. Now, you know, there is truth to that. Not to say that there are no black women living in Beverly Hills, but, you know, I mean, certainly that is not the heart of um, the black community. So it really, I mean, if you, it really was funny. Um, he also said he made fun of Christopher Plummer's age, 
saying that he might wander off during the show. Christopher Plummer seemed to uh, not to mind that, and especially since he won later on. Um, and he was 82 years old. He won for a Best Actor in a Supporting Role for the movie Beginners. And um, they also talked about Max, Max von Sydow, who was 82 and who was in the movie Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and was up for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. And they made um, a nice commentary about how, well, how Christopher Plummer was the oldest actor to win an Academy Award um, for for his acting role, or at least actor in a supporting role. Um, and so, so you know, that was, I, I'm sure it was really an inspiration to a lot of people who are getting older and haven't won an Oscar um, or haven't won something else in their life, haven't achieved something else in their life, that now he was an inspiration that it's never too late, you should never give up. Um, Billy Crystal also said after the Cirque du Soleil gave its performance, we're a pony away from a bar mitzvah. So, I mean, he, again, equal opportunity poking fun. <laughs> and then he, he made various jokes about the Kodak Theater's new name um, because they're, the Kodak Theater, the Kodak, since it's in bankruptcy, didn't want uh, its name to be associated with the theater for some reason. Um, and so he would be calling it various other things. And then he said, um, he was talking about the inner thoughts of people in the room, and they focused on various um, celebrities in the audience. And so he said, and he would, Billy Crystal was saying what their inner thoughts were. So he said about Brad Pitt, uh, that Brad Pitt was thinking, this better not go too late. I have, a, I have six parent-teacher conferences in the morning. So again, it was an equal, equal opportunity poking fun, and I think he was great. Um, what else do we have here? <laughs> On the other hand, there were a couple of weird moments by um, two actresses, Jennifer Lopez. Now, Jennifer Lopez swears <laughs> in, in her um, public statements. I, I think she issued a pr- press release after, this, uh, after the award ceremony, or in any case, she was telling various press um, that her nipple was not peeking out, and it was surely not peeking out on purpose. Yeah, right. If you saw the Academy Awards, um, it was not the very center of her nipple, but it was her nipple nonetheless. Um, and the way that she was seeming seemed to be so um, so unaware of this really bespoke uh, the fact that she knew that it was peeking out. I, I believe that that was definitely on purpose to get attention, to be seen as sexy, to be the center of attention for the evening, and so on. Similarly, Angelina Jolie, what was up with that? She was up there to uh, give out awards, and she came out and struck a pose with her sticking her right leg out um, in a manner that revealed all of it because she was wearing a dress that had a slit up the front. And it was so sort of awkward and to me seemed like a desperate plea for attention. Um, it wasn't even graceful, really. And um, so then when someone else came up, a man came up, I don't remember who it was now, but a man came up to, to get his award. Uh, he was in a group, and he got to the stage, and he struck the same pose as Angelina Jolie, parodying, parodying her. And apparently she was not too happy about that. But it was very strange. Um, 
you know, these people who weren't getting awards themselves seemed to want to get attention uh, to be focused on them some other way. Um, then, of course, um, there were other particularly intriguing moments, um, such as when there, there were some really sweet moments, too. Of course, that's what you look for. Um, when, Octo- when Octavia Spencer won Best Actress in a Supporting Role, she was so overwhelmed. Um, she, all she could do, pretty much, was cry and utter <laughs> non-sequiturs, um, trying to thank this person and that person, but it was just, um, it was, you know, really all she did was cry. And you could kind of forgive her for that, but but you got to wonder... <laughs> I mean, these people are nominated. Even if they think they have a snowball's chance in hell, they should be prepare, prepare something. If they're afraid that the moment is going to make them um, be too nervous to remember all the people they really want to thank, okay, then write down the names or write down your whole speech on on an index card, on a piece of paper, on something, on their on your arm, so that. Um, so that when it comes your turn, you have something coherent to say rather than just listing names, which is so incredibly boring, at least when someone expresses emotion. I mean, that's really what everybody's waiting for and watching for and hoping for, because here the Academy bestowed the honor in whatever category it was. And um, it's nice to see that, I mean, it's, it's gratifying to see that the person who won really was that thrilled to win, that... Um, that they couldn't control their emotions, you know, that it, it just makes you feel good for, for having voted for that film or that person. Well, we need to take a break. I will be back with more um, interesting moments from the Oscars. We're putting Oscar 2012 on the couch. Uh, I'm also going to talk to you about some of the, in more detail, about some of the pictures that were up for best picture because I want to encourage you to go to them um, if you haven't already, certainly you still have chances, whether it's in the theater or on DVD or some other technological way, to, to still see the pictures. And, and some of them really deserve uh, to be seen. Most of them deserve to be seen. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. 
Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're putting Oscar on the couch today and talking about all the intriguing kinds of things that were going on um, at the Oscars this past Sunday. And I hope you watched it. Um, and I was talking before about how fabulous Billy Crystal was. Um, and this whole, there, all through the night, there was this tension. You know, of course, the Oscars are like the Super Bowl. I mean, this is a, a broadcast that millions and millions and millions of people watch all over the world. And so it does bring out <laughs> extreme behavior in people. And I was saying before, that's why, that's one of the reasons why it was so uh, comforting to have Billy Crystal uh, for the ninth year to be the MC and um, and just kind of take us through through it. Um, yes, he made some jokes that some people were, would think were politically incorrect, but as I was saying, he didn't he didn't um, pick out one group in particular. He was equally politically incorrect, and it was very funny. Um, on the other hand. Um, you know, as I was saying, people like Jennifer Lopez and Angelina Jolie were driven to bring, try to bring the attention to them, especially since they weren't winning anything. Um, similarly, Sasha Byron Cohn had, um, he drove the Academy wild before, before the telecast because, um, he kept threatening to wear a costume. You know, he wanted to get his attention too. And in fact, he wound up, um, pulling a prank where he uh, allegedly or purported to spill Kim Jong-il's ashes on Ryan Seacrest. Now, of all the people, I mean, <laughs> you know, yes, that could get us into a world <laughs> situation, a, uh, a um, you know, a, a bad <laughs> world situation. But what, what made it funny, and I'm sure he picked who he was going to spill them on on purpose, Ryan Seacrest seems like the least likely person to consider that funny, which of course makes it all the more funny. But yes, yes, that, that you, know, you could definitely say was in bad taste, as especially compared to, to Billy Crystal's jokes, which, which I don't think were in bad taste. In any case, um, people will do anything to get, to get attention um, when they are, were not apparently, um, apparently uh, slated to get attention during the telecast itself. So let's talk about, um, we're talking about world um, unfortunate or uncomfortable world situations or potentially uh, striking a match to the world situation. There was, there was an awkward moment when um, the best, the 
winner for the foreign language film was Iran. It won for a movie called A Separation. I haven't seen the movie, but um, I understand that it that it was very good and um, seemed to be very you know dealing with very difficult issues. And um, but you know when they panned around the room after he won, and his acceptance speech was kind of difficult to understand, but. But of course, you know, it was the first time Iran won, and um, you know, of course, he was happy, and you had a wonder. Had, of course, there were tons. I mean, I probably that the foreign language film has the most politics associated with it, uh, usually. But when they panned around the room, there were, you know, there were people. Not everyone was thrilled about this win. And what's interesting is that the Academy voted. Before things had come to a head, well, they're not quite at a head, but before things had intensified, shall we say, um, regarding Iran's nuclear ambitions and um, its potential threat uh, to the United States and to Israel and so on. And so there was some awkward reactions to, um, or let's just say not totally, not a total or universal endorsement of this movie or of the idea of Iran winning. Uh, yes, of course, art should be separate from politics and separate from, from, you know, <laughs> from nuclear war heads, but, but you can't help but, you know, be thinking about those kinds of things. Um, then, um, what else there was there? Oh, there was a sweet moment when the writer uh, won for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Descendants. He dedicated the Oscar to his mother, and he thanked her for letting him skip school and go to the movies. You know, of course, that that um, encouraging in him a love of movies that brought him to this moment. And what else? Um, well, let's go now to to the Best Picture nominations. Um, my favorite for, you know, if, <laughs> if, um, if it had been up to me, I would have given it to War Horse. But that's, of course, because, well, it's for a number of reasons. I mean, it was an incredible, incredible movie. Um, and it, it just the whole, it was uh, an epic movie. I mean, the, the, the shooting of it, the, the production of it was just, um, you know, it presented so many incredible challenges. It was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was um, set in World War One, and it's the story of um, a young man and his horse. It takes place in Devon, England, and um, the boy called Albert um, saw saw the horse, who he later named Joey, being born and uh, galloping through the fields. And, and he was, you know, it was a wondrous kind of moment. And then um, it goes to Albert's father buying this colt at auction. He gets into a bidding war um, with his landlord, his rich landlord, who wants, who wants his horse, who wants Joey. Well, it wasn't named Joey at that point. Who wants this beautiful horse? This beautiful colt, and um, he so the the father of Albert gets into this bidding war. It has to do with pride that he didn't want his his landlord to win, and um, and so he he eventually you know is 
made to bid much more than he could afford, and um, and then he's unable to pay the rent to his landlord. So the landlord says that he's going to take possession of the farm if they don't pay him the money by autumn. So, um, so needless to say, uh, Albert's father, Albert's mother, uh, his father's wife, Albert's mother, um, was very angry when his father came home having spent all this money on his horse. But Albert sets about to teach the horse um, to plow the field, and this is not a horse that is a plow horse. Um, and so, but with Albert's love, he gets the, you know, the horse wants to do anything to please Albert, and he eventually learns how to plow the fields. And the idea is um, Albert plants, um, his family plants turnips, and if the turnips, um, if they bring the turnips to market, they'll be able to have enough money to pay the landlord, and all will be good. However, that's not what happens, of course. There's a rainstorm, the turnips all die, uh, there's no money, um, and so his father sells the horse to a cavalry officer because World War I is breaking out and they need horses and he needs the money. And, of course, Albert is very devastated. And um, Joey goes through the war. Um, it's, there are some really, you know, he has all these adventures, all these, he's in danger. He winds up in German hands um, and having to p- pull uh, ambulances and doing all of these physically strenuous things, and he becomes friends with another horse uh, called Topthorn, who, um, who they become very attached and they support each other through the war, doing, you know, having to um, do all these very strenuous kinds of things and almost getting shot and killed and so on. And finally, Tophorn does, um, Topthorn does die. Um, and Joey escapes and he gets entangled to, in barbed wire. Again, Joey is the horse. <laughs> and there is a scene where both the British and the German soldiers free Joey because they're both, um, you know, there's something very, very special about this horse. Um, and so they help the British and the German, even though they're, they're enemies shooting at each other across enemy lines. Um, they, these two men from these, um, these forces um, come together to release Joey from the barbed wire. And then, uh, then it goes, there's you know, all kinds of other adventures and challenges and difficulties, and Joey almost dies many times during the movie. And then um, Albert, the, the boy, he joins the war when he gets to be old enough. It gets to be 1918. Um, and uh, he joins the war as, as a soldier. He's really trying to find Joey. Uh, that's why he joins, joins the war. I mean, that's why he eagerly um, joins the war as quickly as he can. And um, he gets blinded temporarily. And meanwhile, he's at this at this place where he's being cared for medically and someone brings in Joey who eventually gets back to the British side and uh, someone brings in the horse looking for a veterinarian, a surgeon to try to heal his wounds from the barbed wire but they're saying that it doesn't look like you know there's any hope for him. Meanwhile Joey calls to, I mean I'm sorry, Albert the boy, (laughs) calls to Joey the horse in this uh, owl call that um, 
that he used before, that he trained Joey to come to before. And I'm not going to go... I'm not going to go beyond that. Um, I don't want to ruin the end for you because I want you to go to see it um, because it's an incredibly, you know, the, the, there's just, there, there, it's, it's a very, um, I mean, I'm summarizing it, of course, but it, there, there are so many um, side plots, side things. You know, of course, you're following Joey through the war, but there are so many interesting and heartwarming um, events, situations that happen that, um, that, you know, you think he's going to be, in the end, you think he's going to be reunited with, with the boy, Albert, and then something else happens, and then you, I'm not going to tell you whether they get reunited or not, <laughs> but, um, or whether Joey lives or what happens, but, um, but it's just a very, um, a very exciting, heartwarming movie. And I actually saw it originally almost a year ago uh, in New York on Broadway as a play where they, of course, don't use real horses on, in the theater, but, um, but they, they have, uh, it's like a puppet, a very intricate puppet with um, fabric streamers that create, and three men working this, this wire puppet um, from, from the front and the back and the middle, and really making the puppet puppet make these with the with the um, fabric that that goes in different directions, it makes it look incredibly real. So I really would um, urge you to go see the movie, to see the play when it comes to where you live. Um, it, it's just it's just a beautiful horse, a beautiful horse, a beautiful movie, a beautiful story that makes people um, fall more in love with horses and um, owning a horse myself and being in love with horses I, I really think people I'm, I want to encourage people to to experience that if only on the screen that there's something just incredibly magical about horses well we do need to take another break we're putting Oscars on the couch you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at one 866 472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, putting Oscar on the couch, analyzing the Oscars, the telecast, and the movies. Um, just talk to you about War Horse, which is the movie that I would have wanted to see win for Best Picture. Um, you know, it's funny because maybe some of you are thinking, huh, I started off talking about how thrilling it was that there were no, no violent movies, um, in, nominated for Best Picture. I mean, actually, I must say, I haven't seen Moneyball or The Tree of Life, but I know, I don't think that either one of, well, I don't know about The Tree of Life, come to think of it, but, um, I don't think Moneyball is violent. That's about sports, <laughs> which I guess you could argue can get kind of violent, but that's not what I mean. Um, but the thing is that yes, you know, War Horse took place in World War One. There were <laughs> there were weapons. There were people fighting. It was violent in scene, in certain scenes, although certainly not. Um, there was no gratuitous violence, and the violence was really kind of kept a lot of it off screen. Uh, that was not. I mean, if it was going to be gratuitous violence, they would have concentrated more on that. But it was more about relationships between people, relationships between people and their animals. Um, you know, it wasn't, the, the violence was really kept to a minimum. You just let you know that the war was going on um, throughout the story. Well, let's talk about some other movies. Um, of course, let's talk about The Artist, since that's the one who won, um, the movie that won, and that was fabulous, too. What's so interesting, though, is that The Artist um, and Hugo won the most awards. Um, the artist won for the best picture, uh, director, actor in a leading role, Jean Dujardin. Uh, let's see. Um, costume design, in uh, original score. Um, I think that might have been it. But... Um, yeah, but but the other big winner of the night, obviously not for Best Picture, but also with a lot of wins, was Hugo. I saw both of those movie, the movies. They were both fabulous. Um, Hugo won. Um, Hugo won for art direction. It won for um, cinematography. It won for sound editing, sound mixing, visual effects. And, of course, you know, part of that, um, I think, I wonder if they were counting just the 3D version or whether they were also looking at the um, the non-3D version. Uh, I saw it in 3D. It was really incredible. It was really intricate. I mean, it certainly des- de- uh, deserved 
cinematography and and um, sound and visual. I mean, it, it was it was it was incredibly intricate, and it was a great story. And what I what I was thinking about was how both the artist and Hugo both deal with. Um, they were both nostalgic tributes to past movies, and um, you know, um, Hugo. They both had to do actually with um, silent films. You know that the um, they were a tribute. Was they were movies that were tributes in a sense to silent films, and um, you could see the that apparent the the people who voted for the Oscar, for the Best Picture, well, for all of the Oscars, um, were obviously, you know, feeling a bit of nostalgia uh, and w- particularly wondering, I mean, there are some people who are, are saying that, um, th- that the movies are going to be, movies are going to uh, yield to other technologies. Um, there won't be movies after a while, which I certainly hope <laughs> is uh, certainly not going to be true. Um, I mean, it is true that there are fewer people. If you go to, when you think about when you went to a movie last and think about how many people were sitting in the audience, it is different today, uh, certainly, than it was five, ten years ago. There are less people sitting actually in the seats of the movie theater because people are getting movies in other forms. Um, but, and, and it's kind of sad. It is kind of, uh, when you walk into a movie theater and you sit down and, you know, you're not, it isn't crowded. There is kind of a uh, sort of a nostalgic or a melancholic feeling to that. Are you wondering where people are? And, you know, of course, raising the price of movie tickets is not helping anything. Um, movies are trying to make up for what they're lacking in people sitting in seats by raising the prices. And, of course, the raising the prices of anything you want to buy to eat in the movie theaters as well. That's that's where the movie theaters get um, most of their moving, most of their movie, most of their money. Anyway, let's look at the artist. The artist, uh, the story of the artist. It's a silent French romantic comedy drama, and um, it takes place in Hollywood between 1927 and 1932. And it has to do with the relationship of an older silent film star and a rising young actress. And um, the story starts with, in 1927, when a silent movie star named George Valentin, that's the, uh, you know, played by Jean Dujardin, um, is, is all the rage. He's attending a premiere of his latest movie, and uh, he's the big star. Everybody... You know, everybody's taking pictures of him and, and um, just gathering all around him. He is it. And um, there's a woman, Peppy Miller, um, I mean, that's her name in the movie. Um, she's one of the adoring fans, and she uh, accidentally or on purpose, <laughs> kind of like Angelina Jolie's leg <laughs> or J-Lo's nipple, um, accidentally on purpose drops her autograph album. And she bends down to retrieve it and is so-called or soi-disant accidentally pushed into um, George Valentin. And he, um, he, you know, he's a, a good sport about it. And so the next day, on the front page of Variety, uh, her picture, they show her, her 
bending down and um, or you know this incident in any case. And the headline is "Who's that girl?" And so she becomes kind of a phenomenon overnight. I mean, at least people know who she is. And she then um, goes to audition as a dancer in a movie. And George Valentin is there. He's going to be the star of that movie. And um, he, because he's such a star, he has he's able to convince the director that she to give her a part as a dancer. And so he does. Um, and she, even though they don't really want to, because she isn't a famous actress yet. But anyhow, um, George Valentin puts a beauty spot on her, which becomes her trademark and makes her different, makes people remember her. And she goes on to get one role after another until ultimately she becomes a star. Now, while she's, you know, gradually working her way, slowly working her way up, um, two years pass, and all of a sudden, or maybe it isn't all of a sudden, but it's the, the, the main producer of silent films decides that they aren't going to make silent movies anymore. And George Valentin is only known as a star of silent movies. So he, Valentin, at first doesn't, you know, he just says, he thinks that this is just going to be a fad to, to uh, put sound in movies. So, but he's fired, essentially. He doesn't have any more work because, you know, it's, they don't really see him as, as talking because everyone knows him. I mean, it's kind of like child actors after they grow up. It's like they don't, they don't seem strange to see them in a different role. So, um, so it just so so George Valentin puts his money into his own movie. He produces his own movie, another silent film, and that comes out at the same time as a movie now starring Pepe, uh, the woman he met, um, you know, who, who um, was looking for his autograph. Uh, her movie comes out. Her sound movie. Does, comes out at the same time, and everyone runs to her movie, and he is ruined. And his wife uh, kicks him out because he's become very depressed, and and he's kind of he's he feels there's uh, he's a nobody, you know he's there's nothing more for him, and so he and he runs out of money. He auctions off all of his his clothes and his his furniture and all his things, whatever he can auction off to get money, and um. He then, he just gets more and more depressed, and he, he um, eventually sets fire to his private collection of his movies. And um, he's trapped in his house with the movies, and he, his dog, of course, that's, <laughs> if there was an Oscar for, for pets or for animals, well, I think Warhorse should have won, but second, <laughs> second place would have been the dog in this movie, Uggy. And he goes, when he sees what his master has done, that George is going to die in this fire, he runs to get a policeman, and they put the fire out, and George is hospitalized. And Pepe, who's always been had a crush on him, um, goes to visit him. And, um, and she asks him to come to her house to recuperate, and he does. And, and she sees that the film, the one film that he was holding in his hand to rescue from the fire was the film that she was in, her, the first film that they were in together. And so um, then he's at her house, and he's, she's going off to work because she's a star, and he's kind of in bed recuperating. And he walks into this room, and he sees that she bought all of the things that he auctioned off. 
and that panics him. He doesn't quite know what to make of it. And, um, you know, he thinks, he, does, he wonders what her motivation is or, or, you know, doesn't really feel that he's lovable anymore. And so he goes back um, to his house, and he's about to attempt suicide. And let's see. <laughs> I'll have to leave off in this movie and in, in telling you the plot of this movie as well, because I don't want to ruin any of them for you. I want you to go see them. But obviously, if there's one best picture, <laughs> it's worth going to see. You know, it's funny. People think... Um, that that it would be boring. I thought it would be boring to see a silent movie. Like you just kind of wonder, how could you sit through a silent movie? It just seems like it would be tedious. But in fact, you, you don't even realize after a while. Uh, I mean, there are subtitles and so on, but you don't realize after a while that it's um, that it is uh, silent because because of because of the acting because of. Um, just the way it's all put together, and it doesn't get boring for a second, and, and you kind of the movie ends, and you kind of think to yourself, "Huh, <laughs> um, that was that was 99.9 percent of a silent movie," and I won't tell you the point one percent, and and it really did it. You know, it, it was a, it was an incredibly well um, artistically done movie it, it really you know if it wasn't my if it wasn't for my love of horses i would say that it it and the uh, well there were so many the, the artist hugo and extremely loud and incredibly close um in addition to warhorse i think were the best actually um okay we do need to take another break the time is going quickly uh, maybe i'm taking a long time to describe the movies <laughs> But in any case, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, putting Oscar 2012 on the couch. Um, boy, I hadn't realized just how much of the show had gone by. I obviously get 
very absorbed in these movies, even though, um, I mean, I, you know, I saw them throughout the year as they came out, and, um, and they really are compelling, and so I'm trying to give you a taste of them um, so that you will go out and either see them if they're still in the theaters nearest you, <laughs> or um, rent them, um, I mean, get them on DVDs or however you want to get them, but do see them. Um, the next one, Hugo, it's interesting. Actually, I was starting to say Hugo and the Artist. Um, I was saying both are, are um, tributes to movies past, to silent movies. Um, and, um, and then it's interesting because Hugo also has a connection to Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close in that um, the boy, you know, the theme throughout the movie is this little boy um, uh, who lives alone in a Paris railway station, um, and because his father died in a in a fire, hmm, <laughs> hmm, <laughs> just like the artist. Well, he didn't die, but he almost died. Um, anyhow, in the fire. Um, but anyhow, this this little boy, um, he's twelve. Hugo Cabret. It takes place in 1931, which is also around the time of the artist. Wow. Um, 1931, he's a 12-year-old boy, Hugo is. He's, uh, his father is a kind and devoted master clockmaker in Paris. Um, and his father takes him to see the, um, the movies of a man called Georges Melies, Mel- Melies. Um, and, who was a master of the um, of silent movies, and there is particularly one favorite movie. And um, so, anyhow, his father dies in a fire in the in a museum, and his the boy is taken um, by his uncle, who teaches him to take care of the clocks in the French in the Parisian station Gare Montparnasse, and uh, then the uncle disappears. And we find out what happens, what happened to him later. Um, but in any case, his, so the boy really has to fend for himself now, and he doesn't want people to know that there's nobody taking care of him because they'll, they'll, you know, put him in an orphanage or um, put him with a family he won't want to be with, and so on. So um, he, since the uncle taught him how to maintain the clocks. He keeps doing that, and he figures that as long as the clocks keep running correctly, that no one will suspect that um, that he's the one in there who's doing that, and they'll think it's still his uncle, and he'll still be safe and be able to do what he wants. And he, he what he wants to do is to repair this broken automaton, a mechanical man who writes with a pen or is supposed to write with a pen, but but is broken. And um, Hugo feels that this automaton man um, will contain a message from his father. Just like in incredible, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, the boy finds a key in his father's closet after his father is killed in 9-11, and he they spends the rest of the movie searching for what the key um, opens. And so Hugo... Um, is searching for something to fix the automaton man so that it can write something that will then show him what his father, the message his father wanted to give him. And it really, it's a very complicated but fabulous story. And um, in and in the end, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the details again because I want you to go see it. But um, 
but um, it, it, he does wind up um, being able to fix the automaton, and the message does uh, come is from his father. You know, in a uh, does lead him to um, to something that his father wants him to be led to, and that connects the whole rest of the story. And so it, it's interesting because um, the Hugo is a much more complex film, both in the storyline, which I'm not going to even try to go into in more detail at this point because of the time limit and you, maybe your patience. It's, it's very complicated. It's very hard to, you know, you have to see it. <laughs> you got to see it. Um, but it's it's very complex in a good way. I mean, not not hard to understand. It's just that it all is beautiful the way all of these these um Fabric, the, the, the threads of the storyline ultimately end up weaving together. And it is also very complex, again, in a great way, in, a, in an impressive way, um, in terms of the visual aspects. It's just overwhelming the, the, in a good way. The scenes are so beautiful. And um, it's just a feast for the eyes the whole way through. So it's kind of interesting in that both of these films, the Hugo and, and the artist, do homage to uh, silent films and are nostalgic for the old days of film, but the artist does it in a simpler way, n- no less artistic. <laughs> um, but but um, and, and the uh, Hugo does it in a much more complex way. But they are both both um, wonderful films for you know they stand alone. Each of them are fabulous um, themselves in their own way. And then, of course, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, um, I've mentioned before on this show, uh, which is very moving. Um, uh, you know, a little boy, as I was saying, who, who goes through the movie looking for where his key, his father's key will fit and learns all kinds of lessons in the end and brings people together, just like in Hugo, it winds up bringing the threads of the story together and people together. And then I have to mention Midnight in Paris and The Help, um, Midnight in Paris was very clever also. Woody Allen didn't show up. I think he realizes that people are still not happy with him for um, having sex with his and marrying his adopted daughter, which is still yucky. <laughs> Any way that you, I mean, he, you know, he's a great movie maker. I like his movies, but that is no less yucky today and wrong today as it was years ago when he did it. Um, so, um, but Midnight in Paris, you know, people are saying is, is his best film or one of his best films. And um, it's very clever. And um, it's a romantic comedy. And what's clever about it is how he is also involved. There's also nostalgia involved in it, in that the character um, at midnight in Paris, <laughs> you might, <laughs> surprise, surprise, um, winds up being taken on a trip in a carriage um, to the past, and he meets all kinds of famous people from the from the past: Picasso and Hemingway and uh, Gertrude Stein, and and you know all of these um, intellectuals from the past: F. Scott Fitzgerald, and that all of that was really they they interact with each other, both uh, the the current you know the, the present time man played by um, Owen Wilson. Um, and uh, and these characters from the past. So you know, I guess you could say that that's kind of this this theme, uh, a kind of love and nostalgia for things in the past. 
and uh, for, for art in the past, not just things in the past, but movies, and in this case, literature and, and art as well, paintings and so on, all the artists of the past. And I guess the message is that, uh, you know, technology is great, but um, we, we can't forget all of the gifts we've been given from the artists of the past. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Please go see these movies however you want to see them. Catch them still, the ones that are still in the theaters if you can. That still is the best way to see a movie. And, um, and thank you all for listening and, uh, and, and as we put Oscar on the couch for 2012. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.